We will behold and consider the wonders of God and his word this morning, Mark 6, 45 through 52. What if you didn't realize that you had a, a disease, a, a disease that was working its way through your body, a cancer that you didn't even know was there? And what if there was a physician who knew you had it, who knew that he could bring it to your attention through certain tests that may not be enjoyable, but it would expose this disease to you, what would be the loving and right thing for that physician to do? It wouldn't be to withhold that testing from you. Uh, well, we've, we've seen that over the past several weeks, we've been discussing this idea of uncertainty in life, and, and what we've seen is that God uses times of uncertainty. God uses times of, of testing to expose and reveal unbelief. And, and these times of uncertainty actually become the crucible in which our faith is forged. It becomes stronger. We see more of who God is and we're conformed more into the image of Christ. And, and it's very natural for us in these times to find ourselves times of uncertainty wondering is God really here does he really love me in the midst of all this where is he it's tempting to think that maybe he's just a, a divine researcher and, and we're like the lab rat that he's just testing but this is not the case he is not distant, but is lovingly exposing parts of our unbelieving heart that we did not even know were there. So we can still struggle, though, at times with seeing God in his immense sovereignty and power, but then trying to reconcile that with him, with him as a loving, personal, intimate Savior. Father. You probably won't be surprised to hear me say that I think the gospel responds directly to these two realities. In the gospel, these two fundamental realities, our unbelief, our sin, and God's love for us in spite of that, meet. Tim Keller, who recently passed away, famously put it this way, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In adult course seminar, we've been taking a deep dive into the doctrine of the Trinity. What Scripture consistently reveals is to us is that there is one God and creator of all things, and his name is Yahweh. I am. The great I am. And furthermore, Scripture makes clear that the one God, Yahweh, exists eternally in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what Scripture makes clear to us is that in the Son, God most clearly reveals himself to us. Yahweh reveals himself to us in the Son, the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. To know the Son is to know Yahweh. And the book of Mark 
is all about showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. Probably say the message of Mark by now. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he will surprisingly serve and suffer in order to save his people. Uh, I, John, gave us a very helpful recap of where we've been in Mark uh, last week, and we've been seeing, as he said, Jesus is greater and stronger than anything we will face in this life. And Jesus has proved himself thus by his actions, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, doing miraculous works. And we've also seen that Jesus' disciples will be with him, and ultimately they will look like him. This is where it is all heading. And I, John, again, he shepherded us into seeing that this is the end of this is the end game of all things, that we as followers of Christ would look like him, be conformed to the image of his son. So even when we have uncertainty in our life and uh, times where we can't clearly see what's going to happen, as I, John, helped us to see, we faithfully we faithfully work, we prepare faithfully a budget that is biblical and reflects our identity and that aims to glorify God and be who he's called us to be. But we make that knowing that God will have to meet us and supply our needs. As I, John, pointed out, the ultimate aim is not the gift that we give or the gift that we receive in this regard, but it is the act of faithfully, obediently living sacrificially that conforms us to the image of Christ. That's the prophet being conformed to the image of Christ. And this is precisely what Jesus wants to do and, and purposes for his disciples in Mark. Most recently, we've seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus people with five loaves, loaves of bread and two fish. He put the disciples in this uncertain situation and he overcame it by showing them that he is Yahweh, the great shepherd, who, who literally takes the sheep and takes the people and makes them lie down in green grass. He is Yahweh who gives bread from heaven. He is the bread from heaven. And then it ended in the scene with, in that narrative with Jesus putting down 12 basketfuls of bread bread left over right in front of the disciples. And we said, this is showing that Jesus is basically saying to the disciples, you need this bread too. You need to know me. Well, here in, in Mark six forty five through 52, we really have the climax of, of that whole scene especially this feeding of the 5,000. And the question on the table is this, do the disciples believe in Jesus? And, and maybe more of the question to get at it is, do the disciples even realize that they still have unbelief within them? Because what we will see today is that they actually miss out on the glory in all of this, on the glory of God in all this. Now, I know what you're asking. How can Jesus do what he does over and over and the disciples still do not believe in him fully? That is, is that a little far-fetched? Well, as Keller noted, we are far more sinful and flawed and far more hard-hearted than we ever dared believe. 
We may stare dumbfounded at these disciples, but they serve as a cautionary tale for us. If they can miss God's glory in uncertainty, so too can we. We do not want to come out of a season of uncertainty, of, of, of wondering how God will provide, whether it's in our personal lives, whether, whether it's in, in church life. We don't want to come out of a season of that, having all our needs met, all the problems fixed, but not having grown in our faith, not looking more like Christ, not having been more conformed to the image of the Son. So here, in Mark six forty-five through 52 we see that these disciples miss something extraordinary. But we also see what it is that overcomes their sinful unbelief. It's the unfathomable, unbelievable love of God in Jesus. So look with me now at our passage, Mark six forty-five through 52. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So we'll consider this passage in three parts. First, verses 45 through 46, the setting. Then, verses 47 through the first half of 51, Jesus walks on water. And then we'll, we'll conclude with verses 50, the second half of verse 51 through 52, the response. Now, this is a little bit simpler of an outline in terms of uh, just words I chose here, and that, that's on purpose because I want to take familiarity head-on. The title of this sermon is Jesus Walks on Water. Now, there are many memorable miracles that Jesus does. Perhaps feeding of the 5,000, it, it might be the most memorable. Well, this one would probably be a close second. And, and it's probably because it is, it's so simple to visualize, isn't it? There's other miraculous things that Jesus does, and we have kind of a hard time conceptualizing what that how did that happen? But here, we can picture this, right? It goes against everything that, that creation tells us, that physics tells us, right? Jesus walks on water. Now, I know I'm not the only one in here who has ever tried this, right? I remember... Growing up, and any time I was kind of around, you know, even a puddle, it's kind of like, is anybody looking? I believe I can walk on this water. And you try to walk on water. I remember trying to do it in the bathtub when I was right. You try. You've tried it too. You've tried to muster up the faith to walk on water. But I share that because it's such an a singular miracle, right? We've seen the Holy Spirit. 
uh, we've seen the Holy Spirit do many miracles through believers throughout history, healing the sick, raising the dead, even, even uh, uh, food coming from we don't know where. But how often or can we think of a time, another time that somebody walked on water besides Jesus and Peter in the parallel passage, but Mark doesn't even include that. So, so I think Mark has something very specific and unique by pointing out this, this unbelievable act and that's so familiar to us, but let's look and consider as if it's brand new. Let, let's, let's not let the familiarity of it overcome the wonder of what's going on here. So, Let's look at a little preface out of the way. Let's look at verses 45 through 46, the setting. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus has just miraculously fed the 5,000 and he did it through the hand of the disciples, right? Remember, he gave the bread and the fish to them, and they passed it out. And they're probably, how is this not ending, right? So the disciples have literally seen, they've been a part of this miracle. They've seen Jesus show himself to be Yahweh, the great shepherd of Psalm 23. They've seen Jesus show himself to give bread in the wilderness to people. I mentioned that this passage is really the climax of Uh, Our present passage is really the climax of that whole scene. Recall, Mark does not record the typical response at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. Usually after a miracle, we see everybody was astonished. Everybody was amazed. But here, he doesn't record any of that. He just moves on to the next scene. So we... On, according to Mark, we don't know if the disciples are standing there stunned. Are they, are they oblivious? Mark isn't interested in letting us see that. Instead, Mark wants to make clear that Jesus is still not done with these disciples. In fact, there is a sense of urgency here that Mark conveys in Jesus' actions. Immediately, he made the disciples get in the boat. Now, this, this word made, it, it's, it's a strong word, and, and we should think of it more in terms of forced or compelled. Jesus forced the disciples in the boat. They, they were, there was some resistance. He compelled them to get in the boat and go on before him. So I think uh, uh, you might remember Cody a few months ago when we had a member meeting mentioning, you know, we had all these teams, budget team and, and 20th anniversary celebration team, vision team. We had these needs. And, and Cody said, you might be getting a call, a text, or an email from an elder saying, would you like being a part of this team and volunteering? And, and Cody said, what, I, what we really mean by that is you need to be on this team, right? This is kind of the idea of he's compelling, he's compelling the disciples to get on the boat. There's really not a choice here. And Jesus does it for a reason. He does it to release the crowd. So Jesus forces the disciples in the boat, and then he releases the crowd. What Mark is showing us here is that Jesus is the mover here. He is the one making things happen. He's the one in control. And Jesus does things on purpose. This is not random things that Jesus is doing. 
And the next thing Jesus does is he goes up on the mountain to pray. What is it that Jesus is going to pray for? Well, we know that they are origin- the disciples and Jesus were originally coming over here to rest, to be away from people. So Jesus is entering into the rest with his father spiritually. But do you think that Jesus' time in prayer could also include some intercession for his disciples? First, note where Jesus goes. He goes onto the mountain. Now, when we read this phrase, onto the mountain, after clearly seeing who Jesus is, Yahweh, it, 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 we can't help but have our minds go back to Mount Sinai. When Moses goes onto the mountain to meet with God, and what does Moses go do? He goes to intercede for the people. He goes to intercede for Israel. And here we have Jesus, the greater Moses, the great shepherd, the one who not only gives the bread, but is the bread, going up the mountain to pray. Meanwhile, we're about to see that these very disciples find themselves in an uncertain place. So would it be far-fetched to think that Jesus even now lives forever to intercede for us? This is what he does. He, he intercedes for us to keep us from falling away. What keeps us in the Father's hand? It's not our grip, it's his. What keeps these wayward disciples who are struggling with all their unbelief from falling away? Why do they keep hanging around Jesus? Because Jesus keeps them. And we will see this play out in live action. So I don't think it's a stretch to say that what's going on here is purposed by Jesus. The sending the disciples out, the going up to pray, and what we're going to see happen next. Look with me at part two. Jesus walks on water. Now we will approach verses 47 through the first half of 51 in two parts. First, we will see Jesus walks in glory. And then, that's verses 47 through 48, Jesus walks in glory. And then in verses 49 through 51, the first half, we will see Jesus steps down from glory. So look with me first at verses 47 through 48. Jesus walks in glory. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw them, he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. So Jesus prays into the, into the night, and we see that now the disciples are out on the sea. That's what the ESV says, out on the sea. Now we might wonder, what is out on the sea? What does that mean? I, I don't know if your mind is as fleshly as mine and, and unbelieving as mine, but when I read something like that, often my first instinct is to say, well, out on the sea, maybe they're not that far. Maybe Jesus didn't walk that far on the water. As if that makes any difference when we're talking about someone walking on the water. If, so, if you heard of someone walked on the water, would your first question be, yeah, well, how far did you walk on the water? We, that would not be our question, right? So if it makes any difference at all, the, the, act, the, the more literal translation of this would be in the middle of the sea. And John tells us this much, right? John tells us in the parallel passage that they're about three or four miles out. So the point is, 
The boat's a long way off. It's not a swimmable distance. Jesus is going to walk the equivalent of, of a 5K across water, a hydro 5K. But notice the progression here. Jesus sees and Jesus comes. Jesus sees his disciples struggling and Jesus comes to them. So first, consider what Jesus sees. Jesus sees the disciples making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So what we try to figure out by the time frame here, it says that it was about the fourth watch of the night, which is anywhere from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So the, the idea here is that these disciples have been rowing for hours. They, they are rowing and rowing and rowing and getting Nowhere. So the disciples are helpless and in need. And, and, and what Jesus does next should move us to wonder, not simply by the act itself, but what it points to. Jesus comes. He comes to them walking on the sea. And we don't know how Jesus saw them. It's nighttime. It's, it's a, it, did he see them from, from the mountain looking down? Was, did he have divinely given, did, his, did he operate in his divinity, spiritual eyes to see what was going on to cut through the darkness? But what we do know is this. Jesus sees. He sees through the darkness. And he sees his people in their struggle. He sees it. And he comes. I don't know of a clearer picture of, uh, of the power distance between us and God. Jesus comes walking on the sea. Here, we, here are God's helpless creatures struggling against the elements, wind and waves, like, like a, a boxer fighting a far superior opponent with every, with every punch of the oar into the water. It's just absorbed and, and, and met with five or six blows to the body, to the face. They're getting nowhere. They might, may as well have picked a fight with, with the Hoover Dam. They're doing nothing. But God looks down from on high at the elements he made and sees his creatures, his people, struggling. And he's not moved to condemn the weakness. He takes pity. He's moved to come and help in loving power. He is the creator of the elements. They are nothing to him. We, we, we heard it this morning in Psalm 77. When the waters see him, when the waters see him, they are afraid. Indeed, the deep trembles. The clouds that pour out water, the skies that give forth thunder, the lightning that flashes on every side are his. The whirlwind is his, and the whole earth trembles at him. We can't even row a boat on the sea when the wind and the waves resist. I was talking to Taylor about he and Emma being on Lake James, and he, and he said uh, he's kayaking, and all these boats are going around, and their wakes are hitting them. And he said, it felt like you're going nowhere. We can't even handle a wake from a boat. But God, as Job tells us in 9.8, the one who stretched out the heavens, he tramples on. He walks on the waves of the sea. Yahweh alone walks upon the sea as if on dry ground, as if you would walk on your lawn and bend the blades of grass 
God bends the waves of the sea to his will. God has a history of saving his people through water. We saw the rest of Psalm 77. He says, uh, 19 and 20, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It was God, the psalmist says, who was leading his people through the sea in rescue. Here, the struggle of the disciples rise up to Jesus, and he sees and he comes. He does not keep his distance. Jesus could have, as we know, from the mountain, said, peace be still. He could have stopped the storm instantly. But instead, he comes to them in the midst of it. Yahweh in the flesh walking on the sea. Why does he do this? Well, there's a, there's a wrinkle here, isn't there? You've probably noticed it, an odd part of, of the text. If Jesus is coming to them, why then does Mark say at the end of verse 48 that he meant to pass by them? Why, if Jesus is coming to them, does he mean to pass by them? It's because Jesus wants to show them something more. He wants to show them more of who he is. He wants them to see this. He wants them to see him walking on the water. He wants to pass by them and give them a glimpse of his glory. He's not interested in just taking away this temporary storm. He's not interested in giving temporary relief. He's after their unbelieving hearts. They need to see my glory. say, where are you getting this? Well, the idea of God passing by in order to show his glory is not foreign to us in Scripture. Moses, in Exodus 33, asked to see God's glory on Mount Sinai. And what does God say and do? He says, I will make all my goodness pass by you, and I will declare my name. And the Lord passed by and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, his glory passing by. You see the same thing with Elijah, 1 Kings 19. God tells him to go stand outside the mountain of the cave, Mount Sinai, and behold, the Lord passed by. When Yahweh passes by, it is for the purpose of showing his people who he is and declaring his name to them. It's to save them from their unbelief, to raise their faith. But what do we see instead? Look with me at verses 49 through 51a, or the first half of 51. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. So here, what we see in the first half was Jesus walks in glory, and here we're going to see that Jesus steps down from glory. The disciples don't even recognize him. It's dark, it's storming, so we, we maybe give them a little benefit of the doubt here. 
It's hard to tell who this is, and you see a human figure walking on the sea. Where does your mind go? Can you blame them? But it says they think he's a ghost. Now, where do, where do we get ghost from? It's, it only, this word only happens in Scripture two times. Here and in the parallel passage in Matthew, it's, it's kind of foreign word here. Where, where are they thinking he's a ghost? Why, is Matthew, why does Mark tell us this? Well, we've seen the concept of ghost before, haven't we? Remember Herod when he heard all the things that Jesus was doing? What did he think it was? He thought it was the risen ghost of John the Baptist. I think in a way, Mark is showing us that these disciples, in their unbelief, look kind of like Herod. If you think I'm being a little harsh, just kind of look at, at the end of this book, where, uh, at the end of this chap, uh, passage where it goes. Mark seems dependent on their unbelief. Jesus can't even finish passing by them before they cry out like every demon who's ever seen him and are terrified. Now, we've seen that there is a fear of wonder that moves you to God, but this is a fear that is driving them away from Christ. His own people don't even know him. So how does an all-powerful God, how does Yahweh, creator of the heavens and the earth... The one who stretched out the heavens and tramples the sea, how does he react to his unbelieving people who don't even recognize him and are tempted to run away in terror? He does not leave them. He does not abandon them. He does not use his mighty power to take away the storm immediately. He does not not use his mighty power to consume them in the storm. No. Yahweh the mighty, all-powerful God stoops even lower to meet his people in their neediness, in their blindness. And he tells them who he is. Verses 50 through 51, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. So instead of doing the glorious drive-by as originally planned, Jesus stoops down to encourage his disciples. He steps out of his glory to meet them in their unbelief. And he says, take courage. Don't fear. Take heart. This is such a profound exhortation for the reason to take courage. We've seen this all throughout Scripture. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous, do not fear. The reason? For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Isaiah 41, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. As we heard in Isaiah 43 this morning, that says the Lord who created you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Why take courage? Why do not be afraid? Because of who Yahweh is. And what is sandwiched in between Jesus' two exhortations to courage here? What's the sentence there? It is I. Take heart, it is I. It is I, do not fear. Now, oftentimes in our English translations, we work, the, we work to 
to, to make translations that are, that are not clunky to the English-speaking ear. And this is a good translation. It is I in any other context. But what Jesus literally says here in the original language is I am. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I am. Nothing short of the divine name. The disciples could not bear to see his glory in their unbelief. So Jesus stoops down to their level and says, I am. You know me. And he reveals his glory to him, to them by coming to them in their need, getting in the boat, saying, I will set aside my glory for now. And I will step down to meet you where you are in your unbelief. And I will save you. And the wind and the waves cease. If this is not a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is. This is who Yahweh is. We want to know who is Yahweh. God, are you there in my uncertainty? This is who he is. Jesus reveals him to us. He is the God of glory who stoops even lower out of his glory to come down and rescue us and say, I have something to show you. You couldn't see it just then, but I'm coming down to take your hand and I'm going to take you up to where my glory is. In the cross of Christ, God in the Son humbled himself to death and death on a cross in order to save us in his great love for us so that we could see his glory, so that we would not miss it. Jesus is Yahweh who helps and saves his people. Surely the disciples see it now. Well, look with me at part three, the response. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. According to Mark, the disciples' astonishment is due to their lack of understanding about the loaves of all things. And it's because of their hard hearts. Jesus showed himself to be Yahweh in that miracle of the giving of the bread. The disciples didn't see it. And now they miss an opportunity to see Jesus and his glory pass by them because of their unbelief. Why does Mark choose to highlight this unbelief? We know this. Jesus did not do this for his own benefit. I think we should step back from this narrative and draw out some application here. First, God puts us in uncertain situations for our benefit. As we said, these disciples are a cautionary tale to us. If you would have asked these guys, hey, do you believe in Jesus? They would have said, yeah, why do you think we keep hanging around him? Why do you think we're here? They don't even realize the depth of their unbelief. 
they don't even know the depth of their depravity. And neither do we. This uncertain situation was not for Jesus to see, oh, yep, they don't really believe in me yet. No, it was to show them, look at your unbelief. Now look at me who comes down out of glory to save you. Believe in me. We ask, is God here? Does God care? Why is there no relief? Perhaps it's relational strife with family, husband, friend, son, daughter, wife, husband. We say, is, where is God? Where is the relief? Perhaps it's financial. Will God meet our family budget, our, our, our church budget? Where is God? Where is the relief? Perhaps it's physical ailments. Where is God? Where is the relief? Perhaps you feel like you're one of these disciples rowing and rowing and rowing and getting nowhere in your faith. I'm struggling with my sin. Here it is. Where is God? Where is the relief? Often in all of these things, we are looking for resolution, but God has shepherded us into these positions of uncertainty to show us the unbelieving cancer that is working its way through our souls. He's not doing this at a distance. He is doing this to lovingly reveal to us the idols that we are holding back from him. I don't know if you've ever heard of the, the, the Cola Super Deep Borehole. Have you heard of this? The Cola Super Deep Borehole? It's the deepest man-made hole in the world uh, in Russia. It took over 20 years, I think, for the Soviets to dig this hole a borehole, and they, they went as far as they could before the heat of the depth and the pressure just made it virtually impossible. They, they, they get this. They drilled to a depth of over seven and a half miles. That's deeper than the deepest point in the ocean. You know how thick the Earth's crust is? 25 miles. They dug in the Earth for two decades, and didn't even barely made a third of the way through the earth's crust. Do you know how deep the center of the earth is? 4,000 miles. For 20 years they dug, and they have not even scratched the surface. We can't even fathom the depth of our unbelief. We don't even know it. We, we might say, I'm the worst I'm so evil. I'm so unbelieving. We don't know the, the half of it, the fraction of it. The gospel is this. Remember what Keller says? We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. God puts us in times of uncertainty to reveal to us the depth of our unbelief. But he doesn't leave us there. He says, let me show you the depth of my love. You've seen this. Now let me show you the depth of my love. And in my son, I have come to grab your hand. You may lose your grip, but his grip gets stronger and stronger. And with one hand, he is holding onto the father and pulling us up into his glory. As our grip goes, grows weak, his gets all the more tighter. 
So the second application is that God puts us in uncertain situations because he desires to give us eternal glory over temporary relief. C.S. Lewis perhaps put it best when he said that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God puts us in these uncertain situations to reveal to us the idols that we are holding on to where we're not truly believing in him. And when we've looked at our depravity, when we've looked at our unbelief full in the face, don't run from it. Let it have its full effect. And then when Jesus passes by in his glory, he does it to show us how much he loves us because he reaches down to where we are. The gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. If if the cola super deep borehole is the depth of our depravity, then the depth of God's love is the 530 times greater distance it is to the earth's core. The depth of God's love we have not even plumbed. You can't fathom the depths of God's love for you. You can't fathom the height of his glory that he wants to show you. In the same way we can never come to the end of or know the fullness of our depravity, we will never come to the end of the fullness of God's love for you. DGCC, if we were to come through on the other side of uncertainty, whatever it may be, with all our needs met, with everything we needed, needed handled, handled, in our personal lives, in our life as a church, if we were to come through on that other side, but we were to not have seen more of God's glory, not look more like Christ, not have our faith increased because of his love for us, then it was worth nothing. This is the love of God in Christ. He wants to show us his glory. Knowing all these things, in all uncertainties and trials of life, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God loves us so much that he will patiently over and over put us in situations and circumstances that will seem so uncertain, so overwhelming. But God will bring you through to the other side if you will but fix your eyes on him and he will use those times to expose to us the unbelief that we did not even know was there. And then he will shower his love and affection 
on us in Christ. Yahweh comes to us in Christ and says, take heart, have courage, do not be afraid. I am, and I have something to show you. My love, my glory, my grace. What a sight to behold. DGCC, don't miss the height of God's glory for you in Christ. And don't miss the depth of God's love for you in Christ. There is no unbelief too great that is not overcome by the love of God in Christ. Would you pray with me?